Turn with me in your Bibles or Bible apps to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You know, I didn't think that we really grabbed a hold of the message from last week, so I'm teaching the same exact thing again. No, just joshing you. No offense to any Joshes. Anyways, Acts chapter 20. This morning we're getting back into our normal verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. We're going to be moving along and continue moving along in a series of studies where we're looking at Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, something that we're covering in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. And in part three, as we continue on, our, our main text today is Acts 20, verses 25 through 27. Well, let's actually read and begin reading in verse 16, just to keep the context. We'll read all the way up into verse 24. Uh, Acts chapter 20. Actually, we'll start in verse 17. Acts 20, 17 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, speaking of Paul, sending to Ephesus, and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know... From the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ." Verse 22, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's Paul's meeting with these Ephesian elders in the second half of chapter 20 that Luke highlights for us here in his sort of historical count of the early years of the church. And in his message, Paul is mainly doing three things. In verses 18 through 21, which we've looked at already, he reminded these elders of his ministry in the past. In verses 22 through 27, he's pointing out some things about his ministry in the present. We started seeing this in verses 22 through 24, actually way back on December 19th when we studied that ver- uh, that passage verse by verse, and, and then revisited those verses last week with a slightly different lens. But we're going to continue to see continue to see Paul pointing out some things about his ministry in the present in verses 25 through 27 this morning. And then finally, in verses 28 through 35, he's going to prepare and warn and exhort these elders regarding things in the future along with giving them some final commendations and exhortations. And as we saw last month in part two of our series of studies through Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, and are going to continue to see in part three this morning, Paul is pointing out some things about his ministry in the present that really provides instruction and 
encouragement to these elders, but it also does the same for us, regardless of if we're in a position of leadership in Jesus's church or not. There's lots for us to take away and apply in our own lives in these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so with that, we're going to read verse 25 as we get into our portion of scripture this morning. Verse 25, Paul continues on and says, and indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. These leaders of the church in Ephesus knew that Paul had preached the kingdom of God to them, that, that he had gone about preaching the kingdom of God among them. He didn't preach himself. He didn't preach a self-help sort of message. He didn't even preach about, you know, the kingdoms and kings of the world or even really preach against the kingdoms and kings of this world. No, he faithfully and continually preached the kingdom of God, a kingdom that revolves around and is centered and focused upon the king of kings, Jesus. But I wonder, as I was thinking about Paul making this statement, if we were to ask others to summarize what we have preached to them or preached among them, I wonder, what would they say? Like if someone were to put a little snippet, like a a short, brief summary together of what we preach, what, what would they say? What would they say that we're about? What, would, would we be ashamed maybe to hear what they answered and said about us? Maybe they wouldn't even know how to answer because maybe they've never even heard us preach or proclaim the kingdom of God. Or maybe they've heard us preach or proclaim things, but what they heard and took away wasn't a focus on the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, Jesus, Because we've been preaching other things, lesser things, unimportant things, or maybe just plainly the wrong things. While there are disciples of Jesus who do preach the kingdom of God because they prioritize Jesus and his kingdom, and and he's who they or we are focused on and want to talk about, There are others who, because they prioritized other things, lesser things, unimportant things, the the wrong things, and who are focusing on other things instead of Jesus and his kingdom, have become preachers of stuff that Jesus never called them or called us to even preach about. There are disciples of Jesus in our day who have lost sight of the importance of preaching the kingdom of God because they're too caught up in what's happening in the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of this world. You know, while there can be value in knowing and being involved in what's going on politically and culturally or socially, for some, the lack of prioritizing the kingdom of God and preaching the kingdom of God is, has led to an unhealthy or unbiblical emphasis on politics and or culture that either, number one, permeates every bit of how someone 
preaches about the kingdom of God, where politics and God's kingdom end up becoming on sort of equal standing and given equal emphasis in someone's preaching. Or number two, the political and cultural becomes the greater and more pressing issue to a person to preach about than preaching about the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God just sort of takes a back seat. Maybe you've been exposed to some of that. You know, the thing is, politically and culturally, stuff is seriously jacked up. I only heard one amen. I thought I'd get way more amens out of that. (laughs) Politically and culturally, when it comes to biblical standards, even things keep changing for the worse. Not telling you anything that you don't know, you haven't seen, you haven't experienced. But listen, if we're thinking that political and cultural reform is going to change our nation, change our government, change immorality, change people, we're going to find ourselves becoming preachers of a message that has no life and no power, a message that's going to keep us feeling frustrated and discouraged and hopeless Because understand, it's a message that God never called us to preach in the first place. Paul had lived and ministered in the most corrupt and immoral cities in the Roman Empire in that day, Ephesus being one of those cities. And yet what he prioritized and preached was the kingdom of God. He didn't lose sight of that. He didn't start to emphasize other things. Paul was sort of a one-trick pony when it came to what he emphasized and prioritized in his preaching, and it was Jesus and his kingdom. And God used that message about the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom to radically impact individual lives who became instruments of change in the culture and the nation as as people repented of their sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ and had their lives transformed by Jesus. And, and, And notice the Ephesian elders were part of the fruit of Paul's preaching the kingdom of God. They were fruit of that. As the kingdoms of man, as the kingdoms of this world change and worsen and grow more corrupt and and fail to make good on promises, listen, we have an opportunity as the people of God to preach a greater kingdom, a perfect kingdom with a perfect and glorious and righteous and good king who will never change and never fail who will always be faithful, who will never pass away or grow old. An eternal kingdom that others can be a part of and find hope and security and with a king who wants to save and forgive and set free and pour his love and grace out on undeserving people. We realize over the past even 2,000 years since 
Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, how many political leaders have come and gone, how many kingdoms have risen and fallen. I mean, there's not a whole lot of permanence in those things. And so if our hope is in that thing becoming the utopian sort of perfect thing that we would love it to be, you and I are always going to be frustrated and and our hope is always going to be dashed. But our our hope is in Jesus and his kingdom. You guys, our hope will stay secure. Our hope will stay strong. And, And that's the hope that people in our world are needing because for those that don't have Christ, all they get is the lack of permanence. All they get is the failures and the, the changes and the, the things that they thought were finally going to bring something good about that never really worked out the way that they thought it was going to. And they should be able to look at us and, and get from us a different perspective. That we would preach the kingdom of God. Look, if the kingdom of God's eternal, if our king is perfect, why would we ever preach anything or anyone else? Doesn't even make sense, does it? And yet, isn't it easy to do it? Get on these sidetracks, side issue sorts of things and start to preach that, proclaim that. That's the thing that we focus on and emphasize and make our soapbox. If you've stepped onto any other soapbox in the kingdom of God, get off of it today. Lovingly, I say that to you. Step onto the soapbox of the kingdom of God. Make your soapbox Jesus Because that's what people need. That's what you and I need. No one else is any different than us in that regard. And notice at the end of verse 25 that with reminding these Ephesian elders of the kingdom that he preached to them, that, that he shared a sad reality with them that they would see his face no more. And this was a major blow to these elders. This wasn't like a light thing, like, okay, cool, Paul, like, be warm and be filled, like, see you in heaven. This crushed these elders. And I'm not speculating about that. I say that because when we look at the result of Paul's message to them, it says that they wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck and They sorrowed most of all because of the words that he spoke that they would see his face no more. Out of all the things that Paul spoke to them, the thing that just was like a sword to the heart was him saying, I'm not gonna see you again. You're not gonna see me again. This not only shows us the great care that Paul had for these elders that he had preached the gospel to, that he had discipled, that he had poured into that who who God likely used even to help raise these men up into these positions of leadership in Jesus's church there in Ephesus but it 
It also shows the great care that they had for Paul. Their, their reaction, no doubt, must have encouraged Paul to know how loved he was by these men and would be missed by them. And, you know, while people and relationships can sometimes be our greatest source of hurt, can wound and scar us deeply, no one said amen to that either. I thought, for sure there'd be a couple moments this morning. No, I'm just kidding. No one wants to say amen to like people wounding them and like scarring them. Amen. I picture the amen like people are crying now. Like it's a, anyways. While people in relationships can, they can be our greatest source of sorrow sometimes. It's also people and relationships that God wants to use as his instruments to bring about healing and health and encouragement and comfort and growth. People and relationships can be messy, can be awkward, can be hard, but it's what God has called us to invest in and be intentional about. Godly friendships where mutual encouragement, mutual edification, mutual comfort, mutual discipleship take place is what God desires for us as his church. You and I miss out on a lot when we shy away from things because, you know, it can be hard and you know it takes a while to build a friendship with somebody and it's just, but that's the thing that God wants to use in our lives. It's the thing that God wants to use through us in someone else's life. And yes, people can hurt you, but God also uses people to heal us as well. Paul was used by the Lord, these relationships that he had built over the course of about three years with these Ephesian elders. He was a blessing to them and they were a blessing to him. Such a great example for us today. Moving on though, verses 26 and 27, Paul goes on to say, therefore, Verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In, in light of the news that these Ephesian elders would not see Paul's face again, likely because Paul thought he was about to die when he went to Jerusalem, he knew the Holy Spirit had been testifying to him, dude, you're going you're gonna to be in prison. You're going to suffer. Stuff's going to be really hard. In Paul's mind, he's probably thinking, maybe I have a couple more months to live. Like, you know, he just mentioned how he wanted to finish his race with joy. What was he saying? I want to die well. <laughs> I want to be faithful to the end. It wasn't his time yet, but that's probably in the sort of the front of Paul's mind here. But as, as he has that sort of in the front of his mind, in, in light of that, Paul testifies to them that he was innocent of the blood 
of all men. You know, on one hand, Paul is, is stating that his, his ministry to them and the, and, the, and the people and church in Ephesus was not left unfinished, but that he completed what God had called him to do there. And he had shared with them everything that God wanted him to declare. But on, but on the other hand, Paul's testimony, his testifying is also an example for these Ephesian elders to imitate and, and follow that Paul's testimony would become their testimony so that they would be innocent of the blood of others also. And if we're not super familiar with this, it might sound kind of strange. Why is Paul saying, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? Or he's not saying, I never killed a man all, because, you know, Unfortunately, Paul was responsible for the deaths of other people. He was responsible for the deaths of other Christians when he was Saul of Tarsus still, a Pharisee bent on taking down this new sect that he saw of people of the way, people who followed Jesus. But this innocent of the blood of all men is actually speaking of something that is sort of an Old Testament reference. And, you know, back in Acts 18, while Paul was still ministering in the city of Corinth, we we found Paul using this same sort of language, saying a, a similar sort of thing after he had preached to the Jews in Corinth that Jesus is the Christ, when the Jews there opposed him and and blasphemed Jesus. But in that situation, we found Paul shaking out his garments. He was also COVID conscious. No, this joke. Bad joke. Anyways, shook out his garments, you know, as a sign of like, hey, like you keep your rejection with you. Like I'm not, I'm not taking that with me. I'm not going to let that hinder me from continuing on and what God's called me to. Shook out his garments and he said to them there, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. But now Paul here says to these Ephesian elders that, you know what? I'm I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And in him saying that, just like in Acts 18, he was actually referencing something God had spoken to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, where, where God used the example and responsibility of the watchman on the wall of the city who is to blow the trumpet when an enemy came to attack. That if the watchman saw the enemy coming and and blew the trumpet to warn the people, but the people didn't take the warning, that the blood of those who ignored the watchman would be on their own head, but the watchman would be innocent. But if the watchman saw the enemy coming, but he didn't blow the trumpet, to warn the people, and the people ended up dying because they weren't warned by the watchman. It was their blood that the Lord would require at the watchman's hand, that the watchman would actually be guilty. And there, God told Ezekiel that he was making Ezekiel a watchman, that whatever Ezekiel heard God speak to him, that he was to speak 
those things to the people. Because ultimately, as God said, in sort of in conclusion of that section, in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the Lord said to Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God continues saying, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? By Paul saying that he was innocent of the blood of all men, he sort of saw that the Lord had also made him a, a sort of New Testament, New Covenant watchman who God spoke to and, and wanted to speak through in order to warn people so that they would turn to Jesus and live. Paul testified he had been a faithful watchman to these elders, these pastors, and in Corinth and throughout his ministry in every city and to all the people that God sent him to that he had obeyed the call of the Lord to preach the gospel, to trumpet the good news about Jesus, which also carries a warning to repent from sin. And, and also he was faithful to declare to them the whole counsel of God. But if we use Paul's life and ministry as an example of what it looks like to be a, a watchman in a New Testament or new covenant sort of sense, what would we say a watchman is and isn't? What would we say a watchman does and doesn't do? Because I think this is sort of an important point of clarification given the fact that I think some have approached their sort of their life or what they perceive as their ministry as like, God's made me a watchman on the wall. And we see this oftentimes or have seen it over the years, especially since the internet's been around, where we would often sort of tag them as discernment bloggers. We, we might add to that, you know, the now, you know, conspiracy theorists or, you know, we, we might... There's probably a handful of sort of groups that we might sort of put in that sort of category of maybe, maybe they view themselves as sort of a, you know what, God's made me a watchman and this is what I'm doing. But oftentimes what we see is it's just a sort of an excuse to just be extra critical and very much thinking that God gave them the gift of rebuke the spiritual gift of rebuke, which is not actually a spiritual gift. Um, and, and I will say that, you know what, there's, there's some really healthy things in s some of these things that we do see. When I say discernment bloggers, I'm not saying those that are exposing abuse or, you know, those that are calling out heretical teaching, false prophets, those sorts of things. Those are good things. Like we, we, we can get behind that. But oftentimes it's just sort of an excuse for someone to just, you know, spout off whatever they think about someone else. And, you know, this person is of the devil because they had lunch with like the third cousin of this preacher who, you know, it, it, it's legit like that. Like that's kind of how some of these people are. So just to clarify, when I say that, I'm not saying that, you know, every sort of person that sees himself as that is, is wrong. But 
if we use Paul's life, his ministry as this example of sort of a, a New Testament, New Covenant sort of watchman, again, what would we say a watchman is and isn't? What would we say a watchman does and doesn't do? Well, a first, a New Testament watchman doesn't see being positioned on the wall as a sign of being above everyone else. If, if we've been called to be sort of a watchman in a New Testament, New Covenant sort of sense, it's not for us to sort of elevate ourselves in pride above other people, to think that we're maybe better than others. Because you know what? We're the ones who really got this whole truth down thing down right. And everyone else is not doing it right. And, you know, sometimes those things aren't even specified in scripture. They're more of personal convictions. Well, because I'm doing this and you're not, you're not really living the spiritual life that you should be living, but it's really more of a, a Pharisaism. It is being a watchman isn't a source of spiritual pride. Also, a New Testament watchman isn't someone who specializes in and is commissioned to rebuke others and be critical of others, but it is someone who's willing to speak the truth in love with a spirit of humility and gentleness, desiring for someone to experience restoration in the Lord as the Spirit of God is prompting them to have to say something difficult to someone else. You know, it can be easy to say something harsh to someone, and you're, you're actually saying it in your flesh, but you want it to come across as like, well, the Lord wanted you to hear that. It's like, no, that was you. You wanted them to hear that. <laughs> It could even be the right thing, but you had the wrong heart. And it came across all kinds of wrong because your heart was in the wrong place. You weren't being led by the Spirit of God and your flesh was leading you. A New Testament watchman isn't detached from the rest of humanity, doesn't live up on the wall at all times. So in other words, being a sort of a New Testament watchman isn't someone that removes themselves from Christian community or Christian accountability. You know, sometimes this whole discernment blogger thing is like, do you even, are you in, like, are you part of a local church body? Do you, are, do you know other believers? Like, do you have that? Do, do people take you, do people hold you accountable? Because I think there's some people, they want to, they feel like their job is to keep everyone else accountable, but not them. Like, I'm sort of above accountability. Like, don't try to, you know, disciple me. I'm the discipler, right? I'm the Jedi master. You all are the Padawans. You know, sort of a approach to spirituality and Christian community. But not just that, it's, it, it also means that that person doesn't remove themselves from being light and salt among the unsaved in the world. Being a watchman doesn't mean, you know what? I'm just, I stick up, I stay up in my sort of watchman position, but I don't mingle. I don't get down where I might be sort of defiled. 
salt has to be applied to get the benefit of it. I can have a salt shaker on my table, but if I'm not putting it into my food when it's appropriate, that salt's not doing me any good. If the light's being hidden and put under a basket, it just stays in the house and it never gets brought outside to help others to see in the darkness what good is the light. We have to be careful not to become detached as we consider what a watchman really is and isn't. A New Testament watchman doesn't take pleasure in warning or hopes that judgment will come to those who are being warned of danger or, or potential destruction. You know, it saddens me when someone rejoices when a believer fails. We don't take pleasure. We're not taking pleasure in warning somebody. A New Testament watchman warns, but also declares the opportunity for deliverance and hope so that those being warned will choose God's way instead of their own way, will choose life and eternal salvation instead of death and eternal destruction. And the New Testament watchman is to share the heart of God and how they see and value the soul and eternity of every man or woman, saved or unsaved, wicked or righteous, that God has called them, called us to minister to. Why? Because God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. You know, I think in a lot of ways, that watchman sort of role is still a part of kind of who we're to be as the people of God. We see that clearly because anytime Peter, Paul, any of the other disciples, any other Christian throughout history would call someone to repentance, you're warning. You're warning. You're saying you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. You are on that broad road leading to destruction. But we don't just warn, you're going the wrong way. We don't tell them the right way. Your life has no hope without Jesus. Well, give them hope then. Tell them the right way to go. Point them to the one who's going to fulfill them, the one that will satisfy them, the one that can save them. And as a watchman, we, we warn there is that aspect, not just with unbelievers, but with believers, because there's a necessity placed on us to, to be spurring one another on to, to love and good works, to be encouraging one another to live lives of holiness to the Lord. But at the same time, we're not just warning, we're also exalting the hope that's found in Jesus. Paul was able to testify of his innocence because he's, as he said in verse 27, he hadn't shunned, he hadn't avoided, he hadn't 
shied away from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And, you know, in modern times, some preachers have taken this and gone the whole counsel of God. So you're not declaring the whole counsel of God unless you've taught through the entire Bible. But understand, Paul didn't have the entire Bible when he said this. He had the New Testament scriptures. He, you know, maybe had the gospel of Mark. You know, he had written a letter to the Galatians. He had written a letter to the Corinthians. But there, you know, the whole counsel of God wasn't a, this exhausting sort of requirement. Not that teaching through the whole Bible is exhausting, but it wasn't maybe as big as we might have, we, we might make it out to be now. Although if the Lord tarries, I would love to be able to say that I taught through the whole Bible here before he takes us home. But at the rate we're going, we'll just be thankful if we get through the book of Acts. <laughs> Potentially make it through a couple of really, really small books. <clears throat> Let's do Jude or something. One chapter. We'll do third John again. Second John again. <clears throat> No, Paul, you know, Paul saying that he didn't shy away from declaring to them the whole counsel of God, really, that what, what God had spoken to Paul to share with these elders and others, that the things that God had already spoken in his word, the things that revealed the purposes and plan of God for people, these were all things that Paul made sure to declare. As Paul said already in verse 20, he had kept back nothing that was helpful, but that he proclaimed it to them. He declared to these elders and others what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Declared to them and to others what God, you know, wanted them to hear, not what Paul felt would be easy for them to hear or easy for him to preach. We live in a time and a day and an age where more and more people, pastors, church leaders, churches, denominations are moving away from the word of God, watering down the word of God, are manipulating and changing and even rejecting the veracity, the truthfulness of the word of God in order to make things more palatable for those in the church or to make things more attractive to those who are outside of the church. I forget the poll, but there was a poll that was done, I want to say by the Barna Group, where they had polled pastors in our country of if they actually believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. And the amount, the percentage of pastors who said no was staggering. And a lot of this is, some of these, you know, schools of theology even today, the, the professors and people that some have brought in to teach their students are, are people who are instilling in their students that it's not really God's word. It's not really truth, not fully. And there's truth in it. You know, some of, you know, no, it's probably more allegorical and, so what's coming out of that is people who don't really 
trust that the word of God is actually the word of God. And so if you don't trust it, why would you even teach it? Why would you share it with others? We're seeing a lot of that in our day. But the indictment here is that in doing that, in in not warning, in not holding fast to the word of God, in not declaring what's helpful and necessary and not declaring the purposes and plan of God to others, the, his counsel, that those people, preachers and churches and don- denominations will actually become guilty of the blood of others who they never warned. This isn't meant to scare us, but it is meant to sober us up a little bit. It's meant to help us see how serious God views the soul and salvation and eternity of people and the the seriousness of the responsibility that comes with the sphere of influence God has given us with those that he's placed in our lives. You know, I, I am no different than anybody else. There are relationships that I have where you know, I can't say fully, I've declared to them the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of their blood. If they were to die and die in a state of rejection of Jesus, it, you know, I, I have a responsibility to share with them that I haven't done or maybe haven't done very well. And while this is a needed reminder for me and Every other pastor, elder, leader in Jesus' church is also a need of reminder for all of us as disciples of Jesus in these days of greater hostility to God's word, which is truth. Look, there are people today who in their hardness of heart and rebellion to God won't care if you share the gospel with them and warn them, who even scoff at the reality of coming judgment and an eternity spent separated from God in hell with eternal punishment if they don't repent and turn in faith to Jesus. There are people today who would probably respond the same way as the Pharisees in Matthew 27 who cried out for Jesus, who was clearly innocent, to be crucified who after Pilate washed his hands in front of the multitude and said, you know, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person, cried out to Pilate, his blood be upon us and on our children. I just picture the kids being like, don't let me in with you. Like in that moment, you know, like, no, his blood be upon you. Like, leave us out of it. No, but there was such a willingness to accept guilt, not just for them, but for coming generations in their rejection of Jesus that we see sort of in people today even. But while there are people like that, know that there are others who are more like those in the crowd that Peter preached to on the day of Pentecost, where after Peter revealed their guilt and responsibility in Jesus's death and then testified to how Jesus was both Lord and Christ, that they were cut to the heart by Peter's message and said to him, what shall we do? Peter going on to tell them to repent so that their sins could be forgiven, that they would receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit, because as he told them there, the promise was to them and to their children and to all who are afar off to as many as the Lord our God will call. What's interesting is that some of those in that crowd that day were likely among the crowd that morning that Jesus was being tried before Pilate who cried out, his blood be upon us and on our children. But almost a month and a half later, their hearts were in a different place when they heard the message of the gospel and heard the call to repentance and they were ready to respond in faith so that they and their children and all who were afar off could receive the promise and gift of the Holy Spirit so that they could be saved and forgiven and justified and sealed. Guys, Jesus doesn't want people to have their own blood on their heads. Doesn't want them dying in their own guilt as they reject Jesus. No, he wants his blood to be upon them, to wash away their sin, to pay their debt in full, to save them. We, we don't ever truly know where people are at. I mean, we can think that we do, but we don't really know where people's hearts really are. We can judge sort of outward behavior. And, you know, maybe we've shared, we've preached, we've warned someone in the past and they weren't open. Maybe they even blasphemed Christ at that time, but we don't see how the Holy Spirit after we've left that conversation, continues to hound, to pursue people long afterwards. And I say that to say to us today that we are not to give up praying for others, the lost and the prodigals that we're to continue to ask the Lord to open hearts and open doors to share the gospel with others, whether we've shared with someone a hundred times before or maybe we've never shared with them at all. And then we're to ask the Lord to give us his power and to make us his witness to others, to give us boldness and wisdom and words to speak and then trust God with the results And keep praying, keep preaching the kingdom of God, keep being the right kind of watchman. This wasn't just an important reminder, an example and word of instruction for these Ephesian elders. It's an important word for us today. But we'll continue looking at Paul's message to these Ephesian elders in our study next week. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing this morning, you know, I I pray that there are things in this message today that challenged and convicted and corrected us that encourage and edify and equip us that the Lord uses all of these things to stir us and build into us an even greater confidence in the Lord and an even greater dependency upon 
the Lord, that he will ignite in us an even greater passion for Jesus. That he'll bring comfort and healing and hope. And that ultimately he's glorified in it all and through us. Guys, this stuff just increasingly gets worse. We're not to be like Chicken Little running around just full of despair and hopelessness, screaming the sky is falling. Guys, you and I are to be hope bearers, hope declarers in these days to preach the kingdom of God, to value godly relationships and community, to be faithful watchmans who share the heart of God for the people that we look at, the people that we engage with. And guys, believe that the Lord is going to use that. He's going to use us. He is much more ready to use us than oftentimes we feel ready to be used. I don't always feel very ready. I don't always feel very bold. I don't always say the right thing. But he's faithful. And he's looking. Even now, the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro. Whose hearts are inclined towards him? Who's saying like Isaiah, Lord, here I am. Just send me, use me. And may God use us in the lives of others that their blood wouldn't be on their own head, but that they would have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their hearts by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you challenge me, you challenge us, calling us, Lord, out of sometimes, you know, wrong priorities. Or maybe our focus is in the wrong place. Lord, because you want to get us on board with your kingdom, your plan, your mission, Lord, to reach humanity. Lord, I pray that, God, we wouldn't preach lesser things. We wouldn't preach unimportant things. Lord, we wouldn't preach, God, the wrong things. But, Lord, that we would preach your kingdom. We'd preach about you, Jesus. Lord, help us, even as watchmen's on the wall, not just to warn, not just to declare hopefulness, but Lord, also to pray for those that we see. Lord, to always be coming before you on behalf of others. God, knowing that you hear our prayers and Lord, you respond, you work. 
And so, Lord, even now we pray for those in our lives, God, friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors, Lord, who have rejected you, Lord, who have maybe just been indifferent towards you, reluctant even maybe, Lord, that you would open their eyes, Lord, you'd open their ears, Lord, that you would soften hard hearts. That God, those who are right now, Lord, on that broad road leading to destruction, Lord, that they would see, Jesus, how much they really need you. Lord, that they would repent of their sin and turn in faith to you and be brought into your kingdom, Lord, be brought into your family. God, we pray that you would use us. Lord, that you would give us wisdom, the words to speak and boldness and power of your spirit. Lord, to take your gospel to others. Lord, to warn, but also to declare hope, to declare salvation. Lord God, we want to be used by you in these days. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you, our hope fully set upon you. And God, this morning as we've gathered, I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you personally, that even now you'd be speaking to their hearts, God, revealing, Lord, to them their own sinfulness, their own state of desperation, Lord, that they can't save themselves, they can't do enough good works to gain your approval, to gain your acceptance. Lord, that their righteousness is filthy rags in your sight, but that, Lord, if they if they would turn to you, if they'd humble themselves, they'd put their trust in you, that, Lord Jesus, you would save them by your grace. And if that's anybody here this morning and you just need a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, do you stand where you're at if that's you this morning? You want to make that decision for Jesus? Maybe someone online this morning is... <laughs> hearing this, and I, I encourage you, if that's you, stand where you're at. And, and in your own heart, just to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. And Jesus, I humble myself before you. Jesus, I repent of my sin. Lord, I turn away from it today. And Jesus, I put my faith, my trust in you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Jesus, would you save me and seal me with your spirit? And Lord, would you empower me to live for you, to glorify you? I just encourage you as you do that, as you believe as you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, as you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. And Lord, we're thankful for your salvation this morning. Lord, we want others to experience your salvation as well, Lord. And we pray 
God, for the Diablo Valley, Lord, we pray for all the Bay Area, Lord, we pray for our state, Lord, we pray for our nation, Lord, we pray for the, all the countries in our world today, all the people represented, Lord, that there'd be a great turning of hearts towards you. God, that Jesus, the light of the world, you would shine through the darkness, that people would be brought into your marvelous light. Lord, we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.